Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Professor Ian Hutchinson, who is a plasma physicist and Professor of Nuclear Science and Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was born in England, educated at Cambridge University, and received his doctorate from Australian National University. His research group explores the confinement of plasmas hotter than the sun centre, aimed at producing practical energy from nuclear fusion reactions, the energy source of the stars. A frequent Veritas forum presenter, Ian has written and spoken widely on the relationship between science and Christianity. He is the author of over 200 research articles and his books include Principles of Plasma Diagnostics and Monopolizing Knowledge. And indeed, he is, I believe, a Methodist local preacher like myself. Perhaps the most important fact that I have here. Uh, Professor Hutchinson, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the program. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you ever so much. It's a privilege to be speaking with you. Now, today we're going to be talking about your book that you had published last year, which has the provocative title, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? To which question you answer, Yes, of course, uh, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but I think the subtitle actually reveals more of what the book is about. An MIT professor answers questions on God and science, because it is, in essence, a compilation of questions and your answers from your interactions over many years, I think mainly with uh, university students at, at various venues. And so it is a gold mine of thought about the relationship between science and faith, Christianity in particular. So I think it's a very useful, very thought-provoking book indeed. So perhaps we could start with why you wrote a book like this and why you are involved in organizations like the Veritas Forum. What is that? What is the Veritas Forum anyway? Uh, the Veritas Forum is an organization which uh, seeks to help Christian and other groups at universities around the nation and indeed in, also there are forums held in Europe address the big questions of life uh, from the perspective of the Christian faith. And um, it welcomes people of all faiths and none into the conversation and seeks very much to have a cordial and respectful conversation about these big questions. And I have given many dozens of such talks, which sometimes are in the form of lectures, but are quite often in the form of a discussion, a, a dialogue between myself or some other Christian speaker and someone with a different perspective, very often a non-Christian speaker. Hmm. Um, and so those are events which I value greatly. I think they're very much needed in our society and, and particularly in the academy today, and um, they're extremely popular. And um, I speak about science of faith because those are my two major interests and their relationship. And um, I've been asked several hundred questions from the floor at these different forums. And since they many of them video recorded, I have access to those questions. And I wrote this book based on literally the questions that I've been asked at these forums. So hmm. in that sense, they're not only interesting answers, but they're also interesting questions. And they are representative of the sorts of questions that young people are asking about this intellectual context today. 
Mm. And you did work over those answers, didn't you? You didn't just present exactly what you said in in those forums, did you? That That's correct. Obviously, yeah. when you're giving an answer on the fly amongst a big audience, there's a limited time that you can spend on those questions. Yeah. So writing a book about it gives me a, a chance to expand on those answers. I stand by what I said at the time, but, hmm. but um, writing a book gives one a chance to expand on those answers and to go a little bit deeper and more thoughtfully into the questions themselves. Yes. And is it uh, you've been in there right from the beginning of the Veritas Forum? Is that right? 25 years or so? I have. I was at the first forum and I actually led a section of the second forum that was held at Harvard. It's uh, The Veritas Forum has existed for about 25 years. Um, it was started by Kelly Monroe, who was an InterVarsity rep at uh, Harvard at the time. And uh, it's grown to have as many as 100 or more forums per year in the US um, these days. Mm. And so your book is uh, not just about these questions and answers, is it? There's also something of your life story in it. In fact, you begin the book in that way and give us some idea of how your background shaped your particular approach to the relationship between science and faith. I mean, obviously, we can't go into a great deal of detail here, but I wonder if you could give us a, a general idea of your background to give us some idea of how you formed your particular approach to these issues, because that's how your book begins. Yes, um, I was born and grew up in the United Kingdom, and I was not a Christian during my youth, but I went to Cambridge University, and it was during my time as an undergraduate at Cambridge University that I became a Christian. It wasn't that I was ignorant of Christianity in my youth and, and at school. Uh, I was exposed to it, but I just simply didn't believe in it, and it wasn't until I met two close friends at Cambridge University who were smart like me, um, and and also were serious Christians, um, that I began to take Christianity really seriously. Mm. You said, I think, in the book that Christianity for you was not exactly disproved, uh, but you just felt it was outdated. But you were nevertheless, you weren't satisfied with secular culture. Why was that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I was, I have certain principles, which I think many uh, secular or atheistic people will share um, of the value of integrity and truthfulness and honesty and kindness and so on and so forth. Um, and I don't mean to say that those are in, in any sense, you know, unique to Christians. I think non-Christians can equally well value and display those characteristics. But I found that um, in my experience, Christians represented and sustained and valued those characteristics very highly. And I began to realize that there wasn't actually any logical reason to value those characteristics that was transcendent unless one had some religious faith. So that was what, that was an important aspect of the development of my ideas. Yeah. But broadly speaking, from the point of view of a person, you know, at Cambridge University, I was at King's College, you know, I, I became aware of the enormous inheritance that our culture has from Christianity, mm. um, something which we should value strongly. And I began to realize that far from the secular story that somehow um, religion poisons everything, it's quite the contrary. Actually, religion sustains our society and our culture in a very important way. And so that's one of the reasons I began to take it seriously. But in the end, 
for me, the question was, is it true or not? Not just is it valuable? Mm. And as I began to study the New Testament and ask the question, how persuasive are the claims of Christianity? I began to realize that there is actually good reason to believe that Jesus was and is who he said he was, and that is testified to by the resurrection. So ultimately for me, um, I came to believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually took place and that therefore he was who he says he was. I think some people will be surprised, though, to read that you decided to follow Jesus without having all the answers. They might think, well, you know, surely a person of science particularly would want every question answered before making a commitment like that. Um, do you think that it was intellectually honest to jump in, as it were, with Jesus without having everything answered? Yes, I think it was. Um, hmm. Obviously, I, I value science. Um, I've practiced it all my career, and, uh, and I think science is incredibly important. And science uh, delivers to us uniquely powerful knowledge about the natural world. But to do so, it relies on reproducible experiments or observations and and addresses the world insofar as it can be described with unambiguous clarity. And those requirements for science basically restrict the sorts of things that science can talk about. But there are many things in our world and in, in our lives that don't possess the reproducibility that science uh, depends upon or the clarity that it depends upon for its descriptions. Mm. And I knew that even as an undergraduate at Cambridge because I had set out from the start not to be just a narrow scientist. I wanted to be an intellectual. Mm. And so I had read widely in philosophy and in other things. I don't, I don't mean to this to be boasting but but you're asking me about whether i was intellectually justified yes. in my sure. in my step i didn't think that science discovered or proved uh, that christianity was true but i was perfectly comfortable accepting that there are lots of things in our lives that we accept even though they're not scientifically demonstrable so that's, I think, in a certain sense, the answer to this question, was it intellectually acceptable? I think there are other ways, there are other forms of evidence that we naturally take notice of when we're deciding these kinds of questions. And ultimately, uh, there is, I think, in any religious commitment, a step of faith that needs to be taken. But that faith doesn't have to be blind and mm. rarely is. And certainly Christianity doesn't call us to believe things that are obviously false or believe things that for which there is no evidence. It simply says we should take the evidence we have and we should live in accordance with it. And that's certainly what I tr have been trying to do as a Christian in the many decades since. And the fact that you are open to other forms of knowledge other than specifically scientific knowledge, so for example, historical knowledge, does that explain why you were you are particularly open to, say, the historical evidence for the historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus. That does seem to be something quite central to your faith. Yeah, I mean, I think people come to faith in Christ for various different reasons. Um, ultimately, I would say the historical evidence for uh, the truthfulness of the New Testament and for the person of Jesus was persuasive to me. I also found Jesus 
teachings naturally or maybe maybe not so naturally these days but i did find them attractive um and i think as a person he's widely regarded as someone who's really remarkable but ultimately it was a combination of the historical evidence and actually my own personal religious experience which i don't think would necessarily be persuasive to other people um, that were the predominant factors in my becoming a Christian. I think there are actually other reasons to believe in God um, that can be put forward. And in my book, I talk about five different types of reasons one might have to believe in God, which include arguments, philosophical arguments, evidence, the kind of historical evidence that we're talking about, individual experience, the sense that Christianity or theism at any rate um, has a sense of ordering the world. And ultimately, Mm. there are also reasons that are based just on utility, that it's actually good for you to believe in God. So all of those are are reasons I think we can all think about that one might um, believe in God. For me, as I said, the evidence and the personal experience are probably the most important ones. Okay, well, as I say, uh, your book does cover a tremendous amount of ground. It has 13 chapters on all kinds of issues to do with science and faith. Obviously, as I've said before, time is limited here, so I have to select various things to discuss. And uh, I want to make it clear that I'm going to be playing devil's advocate quite a lot of the time during the rest of this interview. I said this to you before the interview, so it's not a surprise to you. Okay. I'm going to be asking questions, as it were, in the spirit, I hope, of some of the original questioners. That's fine. So I'd like to start with perhaps the most fundamental question we're discussing in the relationship between science and faith. So we need to know what those terms mean. What do you mean by science and what do you mean by faith? Right. So science to me, is a reference to the way that we understand the natural world. I mean, in short, you can say science is explaining nature naturally. But you have to understand what nature is. And in a certain sense, uh, that itself is a puzzling concept, exactly what one means by nature. Mm. But in the end, I think that the combination of science and nature um, depend upon the reproducible ways in which the world behaves. And so if science is really the study of how the world behaves insofar as it is reproducible, uh, that is my understanding of it. Of course, there were once upon a time a much broader way of interpreting the word science. And science historically has been used in English sometimes to describe what in Latin is is the word scientia, which was used sort of in the 16th century onwards just to mean any form of knowledge. And that is confusing because I don't think that today most people, when you talk about science, really mean any form of knowledge. Mm. Um, And so I think, for example, when we refer to disciplines like political science, I mean, the study of politics is actually, in a certain sense, a complete contrast from what we do in the natural sciences. And so I, I mean the natural sciences. That's what I'm talking about. As far as faith is concerned... I think it's very important to recognize that faith is not sort of the opposite of science. Faith is not believing what you know ain't true. (laughs) Uh, uh, It is is a word which encompasses a, a range of meanings. Those three main meanings of faith are basically this, that faith does involve belief in and the acceptance of propositions, but it also describes um, a sense of trust, mm. so that we speak about ourselves having faith in 
let's say, an airplane that we take to travel from one place to the other. Um, and so that's trusting in that thing, or it could be trust in a person. If we can, ha- we can have faith in a person. Mm. I think faith also has the the implication of loyalty. So we speak about acting in faith towards someone. I act in faith towards my wife. I have faith in her. So these kinds of things, these three types of meanings, belief, trust, and loyalty, are all very important in the word faith. And for the Christian faith, um, actually, it's the second and third meanings that are more important than simply belief in propositions. Because what Jesus is calling us to, when he's calling us to faith, is basically to act in accordance with a trust which we place in him and act in accordance with the loyalty that we owe to him. Yes, there are factual propositions about the world and about God and so forth that um, a religious perspective brings, but they are not, in a certain sense, the most important parts of faith. So when we're offered sometimes um, the contrast between taking a faith view or an evidence-based view, that is, to me, a completely false contrast. Um, faith is based on evidence. We come to believe in propositions because there's evidence for them. We come to believe and trust in people and things because there's evidence for it. And I think that's just as true in the Christian faith as it is in any other secular or other use of faith, the word faith. But isn't much of that evidence filtered through authority and the authority of the church? For example, I mean, a lot of people would say religion is all about stale authority, whereas science, of course, is free to follow the truth wherever it leads. It's open inquiry. It doesn't deal in dogma and tradition, but tradition and dogma is, is all bound up with Christian faith, isn't it? However much one might say there's evidence there, how can you get at the evidence? Well, the evidence that supports scientific claims and the evidence that supports religious claims is of a different character. That's the distinction between science and non-science in our academic disciplines. Science depends on reproducible experiments or observations. But I think the contrast that you've just offered me is not something that I would accept. Mm. I don't think it's true that there are no authorities in science. I think there are authorities in science. Even though, you know, the the motto of the Royal Society of London is nullius in verba, which means on nobody's word, which is in a certain sense a repudiation of authorities. In fact, the irony is that the Royal Society is in Britain the place you go to look for if you want an authoritative answer to scientific questions. So actually, there are authorities in science, uh, and the way that theories, for example, become authoritative is by being proven out in practice uh, by through reproducible experiments and observations and so forth. And there are also personal authorities in science, people who are experts, whose word we accept. So it's actually not the case for the average person that they accept religion on the basis of the personal authority of their preachers or, or, or religious authorities, but they discover science for themselves. That isn't what actually happens. They accept both of them on the basis of authority. So authority actually has a role to play in science as well as in religion. So if something is a well-established 
theory of science, such as, for example, Maxwell's equations, which is my common stock in trade as a scientist, um, and somebody denies that Maxwell's equations hold, I don't usually spend a great deal of time worrying about that person's writings or, or work because I know that there's an enormous amount of evidence which supports the fact that Maxwell's equations in the right context do apply. And in the same way, I think, when we're talking about, let's say, the Christian faith, when there are well-established doctrines or expectations of the Christian faith, if someone comes out with theories or pronouncements that are in contradiction of those, then they have to tackle the fact that there's enormous amount of background experience and authority, and so it wouldn't be so unreasonable for a person to say, well, that doesn't sound like it's consistent with historic Christianity. So I think dogma and authority are bugbears for many people mm. today because we have a more individualistic view of the way the world works. But I don't think that religion is uniquely authoritative in comparison with science. You say in the book that polls, this is in the US, suggest that science and engineering graduates are pretty much just as likely to believe in God as to disbelieve in God. But the membership of the US National Academy of Science has only something like 7% of its membership believing in God. Does that perhaps imply something like the better you are as a scientist, the less likely you are to believe in God, in a supernatural being? Well, that's certainly the conclusion that the skeptic would like to come to. I don't, I don't actually think that it's supported by the statistics. I mean, your statistics are approximately right. Just to give you a bit more background on that, hmm. um, polls seem to indicate that something like 50% of the university and college faculty in the U.S. say that they believe in God. That is smaller than the population as a whole, but not that much smaller. And so... It's actually not the case that being an intellectual prevents you from being a person of religious faith, and it's actually not the case that being a scientist makes you less likely to believe in God than being a non-scientist, because amongst those university populations, the people who are least likely to declare their belief in God are not the scientists. They're the sociologists, uh, and people in the humanities tend to believe less than people in engineering and in, in the sciences. But this observation, which comes from a poll that was done around about the year 2000 of scientists in the National Academies of Science, does reveal that the National Academy of Science is remarkably secular by comparison with the rest of scientists generally in the US or, or universities. Mm. And this is part of a trend which is also observed, which is that elite institutions, elite academic institutions tend to have less representation in terms of people who declare that they believe in God. Um, it's purely speculative to suppose that that's an indication that if you're smart, you don't believe in God. Um, I, I yeah. think that there, really? there are plenty of other possible interpretations of this, all of which are speculative. But you could, for example, say that people become members of this highly elite uh, National Academy of Science by, you know, devoting enormous amounts of their energy to their science, being completely committed to that and having little time for consideration of other things, including mm. religion. I mean, that's mm. one reason why it might be. The other thing is these, these um, societies are self-selecting. So it probably says much more about the National Academies of Science attitude towards religion and how its elections 
promulgate its own right. principles yeah. than it does about intelligence per se. Yes, that certainly makes sense. However, what would your reaction be to various of these sociological research papers that come out from time to time that sort of purport to show that religious belief correlates with lower IQ? Presumably you've come across those. Um, I am not aware of specific studies that would prove that, but if it's the case, mm. then I would say this. Um, when Jesus walked this earth, the people who accepted him most readily were the plain spoken, the poor, mm. the downtrodden. And Jesus himself was critical of those who were of high very often of high standing in society, indeed of high standing within the religion of his day. So it doesn't actually all that much surprise me if Christianity appeals to people who are in a certain sense the poor mm. as opposed to the rich and powerful and smart and so yes. forth. Um, but I would, say, I would say my experience is that I've known through my life enormous numbers of people who are really smart and I have no basis for believing that Christians among the, them were any less smart than the others. In fact, I think most even secularists will testify to the fact that for ex people like me or, or other people in the academy, their um, Christian faith doesn't make them lousy scientists. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, well, let's talk about the issue that prompts the title of your book, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? Now, many obviously would say, no, of course not. Uh, a miracle is a, a violation, perhaps, a suspension of the laws of nature, something like that. Primitive, uncritical people might believe that kind of thing, but a scientist can't accept that. Natural law is central to science, and it is inviolable. But you, in the book, say... Otherwise, can you explain how you arrive at that? Well, first of all, all of the evidence would tend to prove that my answer, can a scientist believe in miracles, is actually correct. First of all, I believe in miracles and I'm a scientist, so therefore a scientist can believe in miracles. And in a certain sense, that would answer the question. Of course, the question really fundamentally is getting at whether I should believe in miracles or not, okay? Hmm. Um, but I will say that if you think about the historical scientists, the great scientists of history, the vast majority of those, something between 50 and 60% of those, were actually Christians or people of, who believed in God. And insofar as they're Christians, that in a certain sense commits them to belief in miracles. After all, the heart of the Christian faith is the proclamation that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose on the third day. And that miracle, at the very least, is at the heart of Christianity. And so those large fraction of the historical greats of science who were Christians are examples of people who are scientists believing in miracles. The idea, therefore, that a scientist can't possibly believe in miracles is contrary to history. It's also, in my view, contrary to logic, okay? But that requires one to think a little bit more deeply about what the limitations of science are. And if science is, as I've defined it, science is dependent upon reproducibility in in nature then it's immediately clear that miracles are uniquely problematic for being investigated by science and that is because miracles are inherently unique events i mean what we mean by a miracle is that it's something that basically doesn't normally happen and so it's plain that miracles in that sense are different from the type of 
thing that science normally studies. The question then simply becomes, is it true that uh, science has proved that the laws of nature can never be violated? Hmm. I would argue that it has not proven that. It has proven that the laws of nature, which are the things which govern the reproducible behavior of the world, can be understood and expressed in concise and very often mathematical form. But it doesn't prove that they universally apply. I think they must mostly apply. Otherwise, science itself wouldn't, wouldn't work. I mean, what science has shown is that the world is remarkably reproducible most of the time. But what it doesn't and can't prove, in my opinion, is that there can never be anything contrary to those laws of nature take place. Would we be right to call them laws in that case? Would they be something more like regularities, the, the way that God normally behaves, but he's not governed by some sort of mechanistic process that compels him to behave in, in a law-like fashion? Certainly, that's what I would regard as being the Christian view. The Christians think that the world is the way it is because God created it that way and also that he sustains it in that way. Mm. Um, you know, in the Hebrews, it says God the Son uh, sustains the universe by his word of power. So it's not – the Christian perspective is not that somehow God has set this mechanical process, this clock-like object going and occasionally reaches in and tweaks it and that's what a miracle is. That's not – a sound Christian view of what we're talking about. What Christianity says is that God sustains the world in the way that it works, and therefore the, the laws of nature are our discoveries about God's consistency, his faithfulness, mm. uh, the way that he sustains the world, and he sustains it with this consistency and faithfulness for his own purposes. But that doesn't mean his hands are tied so that he never can sustain the world in a way that is different from what we discover to be the laws of nature. And so that's, mm. I think it's a consistent Christian position that he can. Uh, so we shouldn't really, in a way, be using the word violate. He's not violating anything. There isn't something there that he's meddling with at all. Yes, I would. Uh, he's certainly not violating his will. Mm. Uh, he's sustaining the world in perhaps in a different way than he normally sustains it. Mm. But I think also it's important to recognize that if we want to understand what a miracle is from the perspective of Christianity, what we should perhaps focus on is what was meant by miracles, for example, in the New Testament. Mm. And the New Testament does not at all define miracles as being violations of natural law, um, because no one thought in terms of natural law in the first century or, or the first <laughs> right. millennium, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a modern mistake to define a miracle as in terms of a violation of natural law. There are plenty of biblical miracles which the Bible says have natural explanations, and yet they're still seen as being extraordinary acts of God. So I think when we're approaching New Testament, or for that matter, Old Testament miracle descriptions, we should recognize that what a Christian means by miracle is an extraordinary act of God which might reveal his power, it might be a sign, or it might have other compassionate reasons for its taking place. But whether or not it's a violation of law is not what determines whether it's a miracle. Doesn't it cause a problem in terms of predictability in that if God can just do anything, then you can't as a scientist predict that such and such will be the outcome with a particular theory. God can do anything, so you can't really say what's going to happen in future. Yeah. 
Um, that's a good point and a good question. I think it's clear that God could not routinely be executing miracles or miracles could not be happening routinely um, because, for one thing, according to my definition, a miracle is an ex- extraordinary, not an ordinary act of God. So unless it's extraordinary, it would not be a miracle. Hmm. But I think that the world could not be consistent the way science verifies and validates that it actually is remarkably self-consistent because of the very widespread applicability of the laws of nature as we understand them. That could not happen if miracles were to a penny, if they were happening all the time. So the question then is, can the occurrence of a single miracle violate the entire structure of science? So some people think that if there was so much as a single violation of any of the laws of nature, that somehow nature would then become inexplicable. Science would be broken and science could not work. I think it's that's simply not the case, but it's a subtle distinction about what the laws of nature are actually are. Mm. And so the analogy that I give in my book is if you think about the surface of a pond or pool or lake, if you have a miracle, you can think of that as a single finger dipping into the lake and the waves, the perturbations spread out on the surface of that uh, water and eventually die away. If the laws of nature are like that, insofar as if a violation, if you like, of the normal behavior of the world occurs in a single point, then there's no reason to suppose that that breaks all of the laws of nature. It could be that the laws of nature were different, that the analogy to the surface of a lake is the wrong analogy. If if instead it was a glass pane, then a breakage of the pane in one place might cause the whole thing to shatter. And the laws of nature could perhaps have been like that. But if they had, um, I don't think they would survive. So in in actual fact, what we understand from science is that the laws of nature are are rather stable. They are not of the shattering type. They're of of the gradually spreading out type. And I think that that gives us reason to believe that it would not be the case that a single uh, violation, if you like, of what we call the laws of nature would cause them to be something we would have to discard. It simply isn't the case. Could I ask you whether you agree with this, that in making predictions and making statements, such and such is likely to happen? We believe that such and such will happen. In fact, what, what we're actually saying is all other things remaining equal. This is an implicit. We don't actually say it, but there is the logical possibility that God could do something different, but that's unlikely, and we have that as a silent clause in our predictions. Yes, I think that's true. I, I think it's also justifiable that those type of scientific statements um, simply don't make that clause um, audible. In other words, the, the silence of that clause is justifiable mm. because really we know that the world is remarkably reproducible and that the science, laws of science work extremely well essentially most of the time. Mm. And so it would be boring if we say if we kept saying – other things being equal, okay, or <laughs> yes. unless a miracle happens mm. or something like that. <laughs> I, agree, I agree with that, but then there are some times when I think it can get in the way because I'm just thinking of uh, cosmological predictions, for example, of uh, galaxies colliding, and people can say, well, you know, that's going to happen. That's what science says will happen in future. The evidence bears that out. But you Christians say there's going to be the return of Christ, there's going to be the new heavens and the new earth, etc. Those two things seem to be in conflict, unless, of course, you then bring that silent clause into focus and say, ah, but God may do something different. In fact, the science is not wrong, but there is the silent clause there. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, which I accept. 
I mean, the return of Christ obviously implies for most of us that business as usual is not going to go on anymore. <laughs> yes, and yes. Uh, if science is about business as usual, maybe science will be changed. I don't know. I don't know that we necessarily have a commitment to that. What Jesus's return on Earth might involve is something that the scriptures are far from clear about. And I think that um, there, there's a, a whole host of possible perspectives on what that will mean. Um, but I do think that clearly business as usual doesn't go on in the parousia. In the book, you are, I would say, gently critical of people who read the very first few chapters of Genesis in uh, what you consider to be an overly literal way, who perhaps say the earth is young, that it was created in six days. But the question here I'm going to put to you flatly is, isn't that, though, what the Bible does teach? Um, I think it's quite a mistake to think that the first few chapters uh, of Genesis are there to teach us how the earth and the world came into being, other than the emphasis that they came into being because of the act of God. I mean, I interpret the first chapter of Genesis as having one major message. And that message was to the Hebrews, to the people of Israel in those days, that their God, Yahweh, is not like, you know, the tribal deities that surrounded them um, in, in the surrounding tribes, you know, someone who's basically belongs to a certain sect and fights for that sect, hmm. that actually, if God is God, then he is the creator of everything. He's not just another entity in a created world. He is the creator. And so the message of Genesis is that God created everything and that God, if he's God, is the God of all and of God of all peoples. In other words, it's the foundation of monotheism. Hmm. And that is the message of Genesis. Well, that's what you say. That's how you would interpret it. But what do you do with the way that's dressed up in the narrative? What do you do with the days and the sequence of creation of various well, creatures and the like? Is that Are you just jettisoning that? No, I'm not jettisoning it. I'm recognizing that all literature in the Bible has a whole vari variety of d uh, different types of literature, hmm. uses language and that language depends upon metaphor and simile and, and various other, many other forms of speech that in a certain sense are not literal. And so I would also go further than that and say that while the Bible is full of lots of different types of literature, including poetry and songs and history and biography and, and theology and so on and so forth, one type of literature that is definitely not in the Bible is scientific literature. Because science, as we understand it today, didn't even exist you know, until the 15th or 16th century. And so it's unwise to go, I would say, to these ancient and very important and authoritative writings and try to understand them as if they were scientific literature. And that has been, I think, an error that some people have adopted, some literalistic interpretations, um, that doesn't take account of what the purpose of the certain types of literature is. And so I believe firmly that 
um, the first three chapters of Genesis have well-defined objectives and we must learn from them and they are in a certain sense authoritative for those purposes but that their purpose is not to teach us how God created the world but that he created it and the purpose of the succeeding chapters of Genesis is not you know to tell us the details about um, gardens and and so forth but to paint a picture of why it is that our relationship with God is broken and that it comes from our sin and our, our rebellion against God and that Jesus ultimately came to um, heal that to reconcile us to God through his death on the cross and through his propitiation for our sins I'd like to ask you a question to do with cosmology, because you do touch on that in the book. You say that Christianity favors the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. And of course, the Big Bang cosmology does seem to suggest that that is what is in view there. But you're very, you're very cautious about this and warn us against looking at Big Bang cosmology and saying, ah, there, that shows that Christianity is true. Why are you so cautious about that? Well, I'm cautious from about all arguments for, for design for good reason. Hmm. In the 19th century, uh, the Christian church put too much, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many people, put too much weight on the argument for design as being the intellectual justification for believing in God. And in those days, the argument for design was predominantly an argument about biology. How do animals how did they come to be so in, in exquisitely well uh, adapted to their circumstances and how did they come to be so diverse? And so when Darwin um, put forward his theory of evolution, actually it's probably safer to say his theory based on common descent and natural selection, then it gave a great shock to people because they had based this intellectual foundation for their faith on the belief that there was no explanation other than creation ex nihilo in terms of how the exquisite adaptation of the biological species was to be understood. So I think we should take that lesson seriously and recognize that it's a mistake to put too much emphasis on arguments for design as being intellectual justifications for our faith because science is forever progressing and understanding things in ways that don't necessarily lead to the conclusions that theists might wish them to lead to. However, I will say that on the, on the other side, I think that the cosmological argument, which is another of these philosophical arguments to justify belief in God, which is where did, where did everything, where did it all come from? How did it begin? Is not answered and not dispensed with on the basis of our understanding of Big Bang cosmology. There are scientists who argue that science now uh, gives us what is sometimes referred to as a universe from nothing. And that science has somehow explained how the universe came to be and how things came into existence in the first place. That is false. That is just bad philosophy because the explanations that science, physics and cosmology have given us are in a certain sense explanations of how the early universe evolved. But if they are explanations, they're not explanations of a universe from nothing. They're an explanations of a universe from the laws of science from the laws of physics. The laws of physics aren't nothing. 
the laws of physics are very specific things in maybe not material things, but they're very specific things. And so ultimately, the cosmological argument is not answered by saying the universe came in, into being by quantum fluctuation. Um, the question then comes, where do the laws of quantum physics come from? And so I, I think that that balance is an important one to recognize intellectually. Maybe it, maybe this is a bit too intellectual and philosophical to appeal to folks. Um, but I think it's a mistake to rely too heavily on coincidences between what modern science mm. says about the universe and what the Bible says about the universe as being reasons to believe the Bible. Just going back to that example there of people saying the universe comes from nothing, do they generally actually mean what the philosopher would mean by nothing? No, that's the point. The, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. That, that the laws of physics are not nothing. And so mm. it's a mistake to call that a solution to the cosmological argument. It's actually, yes. uh, it's actually an important investigation into what the nature of the early universe is. But by the way, many of the claims about that are or ideas about it are still highly speculative so people mm. you know for example people talk about the multiverse as if this somehow explains the fine tuning of the universe the fact that the laws of nature are such as to give rise to complex beings and, and biology and ultimately intelligence mm. um, actually the, we don't know whether or not there is in fact a multiverse and it's highly speculative at this point and so to regard that as an ex explanation and as an excuse for fine-tuning is at the, at the moment highly speculative but I is wouldn't it, make is, sorry is, so well, I mean isn't, isn't it on the, on the same level as God and you could say well God is highly speculative hypothetical entity so is the multiverse and one can choose one side of the equation or the other they're equal well the way I would put it is this. There are some remarkable facts about the universe. For example, that the laws of nature are such that if some of the constants which appear to be flexible about those laws of nature were different, we would not exist. Complexity in the, in the biosphere would not exist. I think that most scientists agree with that. Mm actually, that there, are, there is something mm -hmm. to explain about that. Yes. Um, and I think one explanation is to say someone, some entity, decided that was the way they wanted to have it. Mm -hmm. The other possible explanation is to say, well, no, there are billions and trillions of galaxies and we just happen to be in the one that has the right has the right tuning and it would have to have the right tuning otherwise we wouldn't be here to observe it yeah. that second explanation to most people sounds like not quite an explanation um, and I think there are certain challenges that philosophers might offer to that explanation. Mm. So I think that there is actually something to be answered in the question of fine-tuning. And I think that Christianity or theism answers it rather persuasively. Mm. I, I agree with you, but why, why do you reject that anthropic example there? I mean, you say that philosophers would offer a challenge to that. With respect, you haven't offered a challenge to that. Why do you reject that, other than the fact that you believe the universe is in fact created by God? Well, it, it's an explanation that isn't an explanation. That's the problem. I mean, if you were up before a firing squad and the countdown is, you know, ready, aim, fire, and after that the rifles go off and then you still find yourself alive observing the situation hmm. and you, you wonder why and the answer you give is, well, it would have to be the case that they all missed, otherwise I wouldn't be here examining it. That doesn't seem like much of an explanation of why you're in no. this remarkable state, okay? And that's no, 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 but that doesn't argument. seem to be quite parallel to what we're talking about, because we're talking about an infinite set of firing squads. 
And in most of those sets, everybody's killed. But there's one in which I find myself alive. If there are an infinite sets of firing, or there are large numbers of firing squads, if there is an infinite set of firing squads, then it seems as though that isn't so obviously a silly, a non-answer. But actually, we don't know whether there are trillions of universes. There may only be one, in which case... It's a very clear analogy. It's a very plain analogy um, to the situation. And so that's why, again, I'm cautious in offering these on, on offering sure. ar- arguments from design. I think we should treat those cautiously. I also think that it's important to recognize that the Bible doesn't teach science. And so hmm. the fact that, for example, there was a Big Bang and the universe has a beginning – I think it's unwise to say, oh, and that is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the universe had a beginning. Actually, the Bible doesn't teach that the universe has a beginning. It teaches that God created it. (laughs) And maybe it's a reasonable extrapolation Mm -hmm. to say that that it had a beginning. And as far as Mm. we know, it did have a beginning, okay? Is it not more than a reasonable extrapolation? Isn't it an entailment? I mean, how could it be created and yet not have a beginning? It's certainly the case that there have been in the past... Uh, cosmologists who have preferred there to be no beginning to the universe. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when I was at Cambridge, one of my tutors was Jayant Nalika, who was a co-worker with Fred Hoyle, who was the champion of what is called the steady state cosmology, which, Mm -hmm. which denied that there was a beginning implied by the expansion of the universe. That um, theory, that cosmological theory has more or less been put to rest because the evidence for there being a beginning of the of the universe is now very strong but it's certainly the case that cosmological arguments and actually theological arguments and consequences can actually influence um, scientific theories and i think that the multiverse is one of those theories that could be influenced and in fact is to some extent influenced by the preferences of people in terms of their attitudes to theology. I don't mean to imply that the multiverse has no evidence for it. There is, There are some reasons to speculate that the multiverse actually exists, but there's no evidence actually to say that it does. Is there any evidence to suggest that the multiverse is eternal? That's pure speculation. <laughs> it's speculation based on supposing that the laws of physics are eternal. So if the laws of physics aren't eternal, then clearly the, the multiverse, and in that sense, the super laws, the laws that govern the multiverse, um, are universal. So I think these are all highly speculative questions mm. to which we don't know the answers. Okay. Um, you uh, mentioned evolution. Of course, this is a huge issue for many people. Um, not so much for you. You seem to be more concerned that it is an issue for people than that it's an important issue in itself. So wh- why is that? Why isn't this a crucial issue for you? Well, um, I think that I've never taken the view that evolution is contrary to uh, the scriptures or to a Christian perspective on the world. Mm. Um, However, I think there are certain positions which some Christians adopt which are clearly contrary to science. Uh, The idea that the universe is only a few thousand years old is, in my view, incompatible with modern science as we know it. All of physical science shows us that the world is old, the universe is old, maybe 13.8 billion years or whatever the latest exact (laughs) estimate is. 
And so to take the view on the basis of a particular interpretation of the early chapters of the Bible uh, that that can't be true, I think is simply a mistake. It pits science and faith against one another in a way that I think is a mistake. I, and, and indeed all of the early uh, founders of the scientific revolution take the view that God has revealed himself through two books, the book of God's Word, which is the Bible, and the book of God's works, which is nature, and in, in that sense, science. And that I think both nature and the world around us, the creation, and the scriptures speak of God and reveal him. And, and if that is true, as I believe, then those um, revelations must be consistent. Um, so I think taking a young earth view of the interpretation of Genesis is a mistake because it pits those two revelations against one another. As far as evolution is concerned, it was certainly the case that when Darwin uh, first proposed it, the evidence supporting it, which he marshaled very carefully, was thin it was not negligible, but it was debatable. But since that time, the evidence for common descent and natural selection has become overwhelming. And particularly in the last 20 years, genomics has given us enormous amounts of evidence to show that common descent is extremely well supported by the scientific evidence. And so I think it's a mistake, therefore, to take what is a debatable interpretation of, let's say, creation, that the Bible literally means that each species was created uniquely by some miraculous act of God, which is not what the scriptures say. After all, it's an interpretation placed on the scriptures. I think that's simply a mistake. Now, of course, evolution, particularly in the America, has a, a long history between Darwin and today, which is fraught with political and legal sensitivities and is problematic for many Christians. In part, that's because evolution as a biological theory uh, has been used for inappropriate philosophical and theological arguments that have been used to beat up Christians and all uh, religious believers for that matter. So that that history of evolution as a stick with which to beat up one's theistic friends or enemies um, is, is a history we can't ignore. But that, but I want to distinguish between that what I would call evolutionism, which is sort of the, the thing which lies behind eugenics and various other arguments arguments against uh, religious perspectives and say that let's separate that from the question of, the, you know, did we actually come into this current state of biology by processes of common descent and natural selection, um, which I think the evidence is very strong for. But is it a complete explanation? Those in the intelligent design community, by and large, would accept some level of evolution, but they would say, well, okay, there's intelligent input into this system. You also speak against intelligent design in the book. Well, it's not that so much that I speak against it. I just say that I'm unpersuaded by its arguments. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So let, let's, let's distinguish between intelligent design, little i, little d, which is the universal Christian position that God is intelligent, that God in that sense designed the world, and that he created it. I think all Christians basically subscribe to that view. So everybody believes in little i, little d. 
Capital I, capital D, intelligent design, is a movement that got going in the late 80s, which was an attempt to revive largely the biological argument for design, although it also had another important strand, which was to do with with information, um, and revive that as a theological and philosophical argument to believe in a, in a creator. I would say that I am not persuaded either by the arguments based on information or the arguments based on what is usually called irreducible complexity. I'm not persuaded by either of those arguments intellectually. I just don't think they end up proving what their advocates argue that they do. And I think as uh, as an apologetic strategy, an attempt to prove God scientifically is simply a mistake. I think that science is not equipped to prove or disprove God, and um, therefore to rely on those kinds of arguments is a mistake. Sure, but you can be attracted to arguments like that, but not rely on them. I mean, certainly from my point of view, I am inclined towards intelligent design arguments. But if it turns out that evolution in a strictly Darwinian sense is true, I have no problem with that. And I would be able to mesh that with my Christian faith. Fine. It doesn't uh, hold that kind of weight for me. Well, I think that, of course, Christians give glory to God and thanks to God for the way that the world is constructed, and we believe that God created it. Um, The question ultimately then becomes, how persuasive do non-theistic arguments about the world um, lead one inexorably to the conclusion that a God exists because we see design around about us? And I think that we need to be more modest in the Christian community Mm. about the argument for design. I think the argument for design isn't nothing. It's persuasive to us, but it's not so overwhelming that it can't be gainsaid. And I think that the attempt to produce completely watertight, overwhelming arguments based on design is a reversion to an approach which I think was discredited in the 19th century. And so it's fighting about things which are not so important. And I think there are other ways in which the reality of God and of Christ come to our world and impinge upon individuals that are more important and and that if we get fixated on these kinds of intelligent design arguments, then actually it's a distraction. Well, thank you ever so much indeed, Professor Hutchinson, for speaking with us. Obviously, we could go on talking for a long time because there are a lot of other chapters covering an awful lot more material. It's been a fascinating conversation, a fascinating book, as I said before, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? I consider this to be a kind of treasury of thought-provoking answers to loads of questions in this area of science, the fruit of many years thinking about these issues by an eminent scientist who's also a Christian. Uh, It's a very valuable resource. I highly recommend the book. As is always the case, not everybody is going to agree with everything that's in it. Um, I have some differences of opinion in one or two places myself, as has been clear from the conversation, but that is not the point. This is an excellent read. I think it's a wonderful resource not only providing uh, compelling answers to many questions, but a resource that really does stimulate your own thinking in these areas. And it has, I freely admit, it has challenged me in a number of areas. So I I do recommend it. Links will be in the show notes. And uh, I thank you once again, Professor Hutchinson, for coming on to discuss these things and for making this time available out of your busy day. Thanks for coming on. It's been a great pleasure to be with you. 